Well, hello everyone and welcome to this, the first of our employment and IR briefings for 2022. I think I've just now stopped saying Happy New Year to people um, for the year. I hope you did have a break after the year that we had in 2021. My name's Natalie Gasper. I'm a partner in the employment team. I'm based in Melbourne, but of course, one of the beauties of this post-COVID environment is the ability to gather together a group of our experts from all across the country. Now, before I introduce you to them, I did want to take a moment to pay our respects to the First Nations people and traditional owners of the land on which we broadcast and which you join us from all around the country. I live and work on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and do pay my respects and thanks to Elders past, present and emerging. So in for a real treat today, um, we put our collective heads together and thought of what are the top issues that um, are going to be affecting you as legal practitioners, as HR practitioners and as line managers as you um, delve into what's in store for 2022. Now, unsurprisingly on our list, you'll see some things that we have been talking about for the last, um, you know, 24 months or so. So without further ado, um, I'd like to introduce to you my um, good friends and colleagues. So Drew Pearson, our partner um, from the Sydney practice, Nerida Jessup, counsel from Sydney. Um, Drew and Nerida will be talking us through, of course, we need this on the agenda, COVID issues, vaccination issues, hybrid working and return to work. I'm delighted to welcome um, Wendy Forvell, Executive Counsel from our Brisbane practice. Just before the session, Wendy and I were bemoaning the fact that we're still talking about underpayments. But alas, we are. It's still an absolute issue for compliance um, across your businesses. So we'll hear from Wendy about what's in store for that today. Brad Poffel joins us, the Senior Associate from our Melbourne team. And with Brad, um, we can't ignore that this year, 2022, is an election year, a federal election year. And so we'll do some crystal ball gazing as to what that means for employment practitioners and for your business moving forward. And Lucy Boyd also joins us, a wonderful Senior Associate from our Melbourne team. One of the real issues that we're continuing to see be of issue for boards, for executives, for businesses, for your team members, your customers, is um, workplace behaviour issues. And that's not just sexual harassment, it's, on, um, it, it's a bit broader than that, so on the back of the Me Too era and the like. So Lucy, look forward to hearing from you. So, Look, everyone, we've got an hour together. We do have a, a quite um, relaxed format where we'll hear from each of our speakers and experts. And as best we can, when there are 600 or so attendees, we'd really like this to be an interactive session. So just in your chat function there, if at any stage you'd like to ask a question of any of our panellists, um, please shoot that through. I'll be keeping an eye on those. And uh, if the opportunity presents at the right time, we'll ask that of our panellists. We'll also endeavour to keep um, a bit of time at the end for Q&A. But rest assured, if we don't get to you um, throughout the session, we'll be collating those and, and can come back to you with any further questions. Alrighty, so without any further ado, um, Nerida and Drew, COVID vaccination issues. So where are we now? Um, so Drew, first up with you, we've obviously now started to see a few decisions being handed down in relation to vaccination mandates. Um, where are we at? What's the Commission's attitude on this? Have we seen any court cases and what do we see in store? Yeah, well, I mean, COVID-19, the subject that we have to have. Um, I think we're all kind of entering this phase where we're thinking about getting back into the offices. I know here in New South Wales, our current government restrictions will lift at the end of the month and all indications are that there's going to be this shift back to you can require your employees to return to the office. What we've seen over the last couple of months, uh, really from kind of October, November last year, are a series of decisions that have come through the Fair Work Commission um, in relation to workplace issues. There have been various court cases um, around the country dealing with public health orders and mandates, um, but certainly the, the Commission is the, the place that has grappled most with vaccination, either as a condition of employment or a condition of access to the workplace. 
Um, of course, the full bench of the decision uh, looked at this in the Mount Arthur case. Um, that decision was handed down uh, in early December. Um, and there the full bench said, look, the, an employer can put in place a requirement that people be vaccinated in order to um, access their workplace. That is something that is capable of being both lawful and reasonable. Um, the devil is, of course, in the detail with exactly whether the direction for a particular employer in relation to their workforce, their workplace, whether it's going to be lawful. Um, and I think the, the most interesting space is in the reasonableness because something might be lawful, it may not necessarily be reasonable um, in every circumstance. And so we're continuing to see um, the Commission grapple with these issues. We're yet to see the Commission start looking at the um, effects of these employer positions, which are, of course, terminations of employment um, and the like. And I think uh, we're certainly seeing an influx of unfair dismissals and general protections claims um, with clients who have implemented a, a vaccination policy um, and they will kind of work their way through the, the Commission system. The conciliations are um, underway. They've been underway for a, a couple of months now. I think we'll start to see arbitrations getting listed and We'll get a bit more guidance on that individual front but certainly from the collective front um, the commission's view is very clearly and um, i'd encourage everyone to look at paragraph 29 of the mount arthur decision where it states very simply in 10 bullet points this is lawful this is reasonable um, and that's what we really need to test ourselves against so drew if we've got that runway for lawful and reasonable what do you see as the area for legal risk for businesses who are looking to implement vaccination requirements then? Look, there's a, probably a couple of places. A big one is fundamentally any vaccination position that you take is rooted in workplace health and safety. So getting back to basics, calling people like Merida um, and just testing that you have absolutely hit the mark in terms of the safety case, why are we doing this? Um, the consultation piece, the information that we're sharing with employees, um, you know, for the, such a fundamental safety issue, um, it's very easy to think, oh, well, of course, everyone knows everything. Um, and it's only when you kind of end up in a, a court or a commission hearing room um, that you sometimes step back and look at exactly what, what was done, what was shared with people, how were their thoughts, ideas and suggestions um, invited and brought into the decision-making process um, and how does the it, it's then this kind of interaction between the industrial side of things consultation under the Fair Work Act the model clause for a lot of employers um, awards enterprise agreements um, and the like um, around the, the major change space now that is something that has not been settled um, and I don't think we'll see it settled for a little while yet so it, it is something that employers are going to need to can, continue to, to consider. Um, so consultation is one. I think um, the other big area is in the privacy space. In order to enforce any position on vaccination um, that involves a requirement that people be vaccinated, you are going to be asking people to confirm their vaccination status. That is information, it's sensitive information, and you need to um, make sure that you're complying with the Australian privacy principles to the extent that they apply to your business and they will apply to the majority, um, if not everyone on this call today. And being sure that we're being very clear about what we're collecting, why we're collecting it, what we're doing with it, and also building systems so that we can maintain um, up-to-date information. So obviously Atagi um, shifted the position in terms of what is fully vaccinated. There's still a little bit of debate around it. I think the fundamental is um, that people need to obtain boosters as they are recommended. That's this fully vaccinated concept. Um, and so you don't want to go through a process and then have to go through another consultation process, implementation process in order to ensure that people maintain their vaccination status because that's gonna be something very important when we do get into that phase of talking with our employees about returning to work um, because everybody will have different risk appetites um, for being exposed to COVID based on their personal circumstances. Do they have someone that is um, unable to be vaccinated, whether that's young children, um, people with particular medical issues, um, et cetera, and what 
you know, what is going to make our people comfortable to get back into the office and to get back into um, this, you know, new, largely hybrid world. And do you think, Drew, that there's any um, sort of threshold issues that still we need some jurisprudence on, these threshold key level risk areas? Look, I, I think by and large, the risk areas are what we've really known all along. We've had the, the Commission has kind of been fairly um, fulsome in their consideration of it. You layer in on top of that the the cases from the state Supreme Courts that have considered the public health orders. And I think we've got a pretty good uh, map of what needs to be considered. Um, what's going to continue to be really interesting is the kind of, at the moment, lowering risk levels, um, given that case numbers are dropping, particularly in New South Wales and, and uh, Victoria. Um, but, you know, we, we never know what's around the corner, um, particularly with, with COVID and whilst I think we all hope that Omicron is the last of the variants of concern, we just don't know um, what's going to happen on that space. We also don't know what's going to happen in the vaccination space. We know that um, new vaccines are being developed at the moment um, and that various treatments are being um, looked at by our you know, scientific communities. And so as that risk profile changes, we're going to have to reconsider um, positions and you know what how the, the factual circumstances align with the, the law. Just before I throw to you, Nerida, we've just got a question come through to the audience. In circumstances where we've got this patchwork quilt of public health orders across the country, um, to, to what extent can you or should you, Nerida, perhaps this is a better question, um, or invite your comments on this as well. To what extent um, can an employer rely on those more general health and safety obligations as the impetus for a vaccine mandate? Yeah, I think that that's certainly um, the approach that a lot of employers have taken is uh, to obviously comply with the public health orders in place, but take a broader approach, you know, a workforce national approach to vaccination mandates, noting that the, the jurisdictional specific public health orders not only impose different requirements, but they also, there are really different anxiety levels and attitudes in workplaces in those different jurisdictions. Some of us have lived with COVID for a long time. You know, some jurisdictions like WA, for example, there's a lot more anxiety about, you know, working during a, a pandemic or, or, or working in an outbreak. So uh, employers, certainly uh, a lot of the employers we're working with have chosen to take that um, workforce-wide or workplace-wide um, vaccination mandate, but as Drew said, there needs to be a really clear reason why. So employers that are, are moving in that direction need to be sure um, that there is a risk-based uh, um, uh, justification or rationale for making that decision and that that rationale is revisited as, as the, you know, the nature of the outbreak, the, the variants, the technology available, the scientific and medical data changes that the employers continue to revisit that to make sure that there is you know, a, a, a clear safety rationale for having that, that uh, mandate in place. And interestingly, just had a comment through um, saying that the New South Wales Premier is currently <laughs> removing the pandemic restrictions. So, you know, in live time, you can see exactly how quickly things shift. Um, and it's the same, I think, for the public health orders as they kind of have done their jobs and, you know, they will ultimately be varied, amended, lifted. Yeah. I think with the public health orders, you know, there's potential that they will be paired back to, you know, healthcare high-risk settings. Uh, and, you know, we, we've seen just kind of a lifting of some of those harder actions that have been taken by government to date. Such a um, complex area for employers to navigate who have multi-jurisdictional operations and particularly where people now that the borders have opened up and moving across um, across borders so you have this curious situation where you'll have two people working side by side with potentially different um, vaccination mandates applying to them so well we'll keep updating everyone on um, vaccination mandates Nerida just um, we're in this world now I'm still at home I can see Drew and Lucy are in the office 
we're getting people back to work, but it's a bit slower than I think a lot of organisations had hoped. Um, we've got calls from the mayors of big CBDs screaming for people to come back in to fill up cafes and the like. So, I mean, what 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 is the situation in terms of returning people to the office and, of course, with Omicron overlaying all this? Yeah, sure. I think towards the end of last year, uh, employers were... Um, very hopeful that we'd be back in the office early Q1 this year. And that 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 was the plans that a lot of employers have set. Omicron has thrown a bit of a spatter in the works, but I, I think really uh, it's delayed the return to the office. So the it's interesting that, that uh, those mask requirements are being repealed as we speak. I think masks in the office, for example, has been a real barrier to getting people back into work, um, as is waiting for people to really get to that point where they are triple vaxxed and moving them out, you know, that, that really I think that the move back into the office will follow the general population getting out and about following the, the kind of post-Christmas shutdown. So uh, it has slowed down the move back into the office, but employers are continuing to plan, you know, in the, the short term to, to get back into the office and in a hybrid way for, for a lot of those um, workplaces. And there's a lot of benefit in doing so, you know, I think we've been stuck at home for a couple of years, there's there's mental health impacts, there's productivity impacts, it's more difficult to supervise work, you know, there is real recognised benefit in having people in the workplace, but I think that the workplace looking ahead looks very different from what it did prior to, um, to COVID. So some of the issues that employers have been working through is, well, we've got a new variant. We've set our, our vaccination mandates during Delta. You know, does that still hold true under Omicron? And so they're revisiting the medical scientific data and, and really the rationale for having this mandate in place. Uh, there is also, I, I, there's been a bit of a question about, well, if we're not actually in the office, how do we implement, how do we enforce these vaccination mandates? And the approach is generally, we might not be in the office on the you know, 17th of February, we're really hoping to be in there March, April, and uh, in order to keep up, you know, so that everybody is fully vaccinated when we do kind of regroup in the office, employers have continued to implement the vaccination mandates probably with a bit more flexibility. You know, Novavax has been, has come come on the market. So that's, um, you know, that's, there's been a lot of workers who've wanted to wait for that to come on. So they'll now be in a position to comply with vaccination mandates. Um, and there's been a, probably a, a bit more flexibility in terms of timing, but, uh, you know, in a general sense, employers are continuing to work through with their plans to have side entry requirements um, vaccination and they're also looking ahead how do we include booster shots and you know keeping up to date with your, your COVID vaccinations as part of the site access requirement does that require a new round of consultation how do we set that so that um, uh, you know fully vaccinated is triple jab for, for the moment um, which is which has been shown to, to um, provide the, the highest level of protection, particularly for this variant. So there's a few issues that employers are working through, but um, short answer is yes, I think that there is a real move to get back into the office and, and soon. Thanks, Nerida. I think we've got time for um, just one more question from you in the chat before we move to Wendy and on the payment. So do you um, think that COVID vaccination requirements will continue to be required post-2022? I think uh, it is dangerous to make predictions about COVID. You know, it, um, anybody who's made predictions about COVID has probably been proved wrong um, fairly often. I, what it will require is that we continue to revisit the variants, the technology available. It is very, very possible that this won't be an employment issue in 12 months' time, but we really can't we, we can't say what it's going to look like in 12 months' time. Thanks, Nerida. Um, there was just one more come through about, are we seeing cases in the Commission based on employees being terminated or disciplined due, due to refusal to return to office work, particularly after people working from home sometime? So this, Drew, goes to that um, question yeah. that you were talking 
to at the start and there was a case um, helpful albeit in a different context um, determined in the Queensland um, Discrimination Tribunal which looked at a particular individual she was an HR manager um, and in that case it was found in fact that it was an inherent requirement of her role to attend the workplace and that was so despite the fact that um, she had very successfully um, worked um, at home for a period of very many months beforehand. So anything else from you, Drew, on that? Oh, look, I think that is, that is the kind of question at the moment. Um, I have no doubt that employers across New South Wales are right now thinking about, we were planning for the 1st of March to ask people to come back to the office. Um, that restriction has now been lifted and from tomorrow an employer can, it seems, um, require employees to attend the usual place of work. So there will be cases on this. There are, um, we, we've seen in the claims that are coming through in the vaccination mandate space that employees are saying, I, why should I have to be vaccinated? I've worked from home for the last 18 months. Um, it's, it's kind of uh, everything old is new again. We've dealt with this a lot over the time, over the years in terms of modified returns to work in a workplace injury kind of space. I think it is something we will see um, litigated and I think ultimately um, it comes back to what are the inherent requirements of a role and I would say for employees, um, office-based employees or employees who have teams working in a particular location, for most of those, if not all, there is going to be a requirement that they do attend the office or the workplace yeah. on a regular basis. It's We can do a lot remotely, um, you can be very successful, but it's very different when we're in a hybrid world to when we were all in kind of forced lockdowns under the public health orders and the like. Yeah, I agree. And I think there's a real trick to how an organisation communicates its requirement or expectation or whatever word that um, is chosen to be used about bringing people back and being consistent about that, the need for collaboration and the like. And, you know, in some circumstances that might not quite gel with the sorts of things that Nerida from a safety perspective might say is important in terms of A teams, B teams, making sure that you split things up. So um, certainly one that will uh, keep a keen eye on as those cases start to come through the Commission and the courts. Thanks Drew and Nerida for your observations there. There were a few um, more questions that have come through the chat. If we do get time at the end of the session we'll, we'll pick your brains back up again. Wendy, underpayments, compliance issues. Um, what's happening with the flow at the moment? What uh, in your reflection, observation from the conversations that you're having with clients? What, uh, what are they taking issue and what sort of issues are our businesses um, uncovering as they go through these? So no surprise to anyone that one of the key priorities for the FOI for this year is going to be looking at large corporates. You know, um, by what we've heard, there's certainly thousands of employers that have investigations on foot that their FOI is looking into either because of self-disclosures or, or because of other issues that have arisen that have come to the FOI's attention. Um, so very active in this space, a, a regulator that's really taking these issues really seriously. Where it's moving really fast in relation to some employers is where the Fair Work Ombudsman thinks that there's significant public interest in that issue or where it's involving kind of a key area of interpretation. So you look at the some of the prosecutions that are happening at the moment, there's key issues on set off that I'll talk about in a minute that, that they're looking at that I'm watching and I really want a decision on. Um, and some issues of interpretation in the award between where the employer has taken one interpretation in their remediation and, and paid people accordingly. And the Fair Work Ombudsman has a different view on that. So I think, those matters are moving very fast to prosecution stage. Um, the other area which I, certainly we see less common is where the Fair Work Ombudsman think there's, thinks there's been like a blatant disregard of the law. So traditionally I think there have been smaller businesses that have been prosecuted in that space 
but we are seeing, you know, where a business, for instance, has been aware of an issue for a number of years, but perhaps hasn't pressed go on a payroll project. And that is discovered by the flow through things like notices to produce, then that employer might again um, face a much quicker process. We've also got a whole cohort of employers where they have investigations that have been going for years. Um, perhaps the remediation is completely done and they're still in discussions with the ombudsman about what steps they're going to take. Um, and of course, we're seeing still a continuing rise of class actions, of, of unions, of litigants um, taking employers on in relation to things like annual salaries and rest breaks. So it continues to be an area that's really highly litigated. The cases are going through the courts very slowly, but we're hoping there's going to be developments as the year progresses. Yeah. And I think it'll be really interesting to see how courts, just from a pure case management perspective, manage these sorts of cases. Um, because traditionally, of course, the Fair Work Ombudsman, sorry, not of course, but historically, the Fair Work Ombudsman has tended to prosecute the quite egregious breaches of the Act, you know, the mum and dad fish and chip shop owners where someone's paid $5 an hour and didn't see them in lieu of uh, superannuation. But now we've got these incredibly complex cases involving thousands of current and former employees and, uh, you know, interpretation of awards and instruments that, um, you know, you need an advanced degree in all sorts of things to try and figure out. So just, just from that perspective, that's going to be really interesting. And then, Wendy, to your point, you overlay these competing um, prosecutions and class actions and the like. So I think for nothing else, it will be really interesting to see just practically how these sorts of things are managed by courts from an evidentiary perspective and a case management perspective. Definitely. And I mean, a lot of the issues that we see in these projects are around data gaps. You know, there's there's always sort of assumptions or decis business decisions you have to make about which way you're going to go on particular rules. So how the court will grapple with that when they're looking at individuals' cases and going, when did they work? What does the data say? It's, yeah, it's going to be complex, I think, and not something we've really seen to date. Um, some we've seen have been agreed statements of facts at the smaller end, but certainly this is a whole new world in relation to how the courts are going to deal with this. And there's obviously a number of cases on foot. I think the really close thing that I'm watching is set off. So obviously employers in this space have taken different approaches. The the ombudsman's approach is it should be pay period by pay period, whether that be you know weekly, fortnightly, or monthly, which which is a bit problematic because often if you're remediating payments, you know the next fortnight, for instance, then there's, there's a real timing issue. So in the model, that might show up as a as an underpayment when perhaps it isn't. So there's some of those issues that that employers decide to take things like six monthly set off or, or yearly set off to kind of smooth out those payments. Um, the issue of course with that is the Ombudsman has a, has a different view. So a lot of the issues with those cases are, are gonna look at is, is set off permissible and the cases have been kind of all over the shop. We really need a definitive authority on that to help everyone who's going through these projects going forward get a bit of clarity I think. Yeah, no, I agree, Wendy. Sounds like um, a little area of law could be off to the High Court again at some stage in the future. So in your experience then, though, that tension between some of these really important threshold issues like set-off, um, are you seeing that mean that EUs are becoming less available to employers or, or are things just stagnating? I think you said as well, some investigations have just been on ice for quite a long time. What are you seeing, when? I think it's a really different approach with everyone. So it's really hard to predict which kind of camp you fall in as an employer. Again, some are running at the speed of light towards prosecution where they're really seen as a significant issue. Um, others, um, communications with the with the FOIA might be once every few months. Um, I think for those employers that are willing to kind of open their books, um, not fight about legal professional privilege, 
um, provide the rules, provide the calculations, you know, they're running very quickly to enforceable undertakings and signing up on that. I think most of the cases that we're seeing is a midway between the two is um, where there might be privilege involved, where there's a bit of complexity. So perhaps we're kind of in a middle stage where we're not quite um, heading towards prosecution, we're not quite at EU stage and the discussions with, with the Ombudsman are continuing, but a lot of it turns on the approach you've taken during remediation and on issues like set off, um, on whether the, the Ombudsman disagrees with any parts of, for instance, the award that you've set up in, in the way you've constructed the rules. Um, but it's, it's, yeah, everyone's kind of on their own path. But what, I mean, what is ultimately key is, is getting money if there is underpayments back into people's pockets as quickly as possible. So it's not uncommon for someone to have completely finished their remediation and still be continuing their discussions with the ombudsman thereafter. And, and that's very, very, very common. Yeah. No, I agree. That's been my observation and reflection as well. And I think to your point about um, how these investigations are progressing and the speed. Um, the regulator now, it seems, is not at all shy to use the statutory powers available to it to assist it in negotiations. And I think employers can expect to be met with um, a series of notices to produce and the like. And, and the question, as you say, Wendy, one of the sticking points often, and we've heard this from the Fair Work Ombudsman herself in uh, conversation, is that um, their expectation is that um, you know there, there not be fights about privilege and whatnot, and that will hold employers in greater stead when negotiating EUs. But of course, that that presents a very complex issue, particularly where there is the spectre of class action proceedings and um, what that means in terms of waiver of privilege and the like. So I'm sorry, everyone, buckle in then for 2022, it continues to be a focus um, for businesses. Now, now, what, what can organisations be doing, Wendy, if they haven't already to mitigate the sort of risks that we're talking about in terms of regulator um, investigation or class action prosecutions? Yeah, there's, I mean, we've got an election this year and, and Brad and Nat, you'll, you'll talk a bit about that, but certainly the kind of wage theft legislation continues to be talked about at a federal and a state level, right? So I think we, we say this, and I've said this before, going back to basics, so we're continuing to see things like issues with award coverage. So particularly in the charity sector, um, there's been assumptions made about the applicability of the Clark's Award instead of the Shad's Award, and that's got people into trouble. So, so going back to basics, have we got the award right? Have we got the rules right in the system? Have we got the governance framework in place to make sure as things change, as instruments change, as different cohorts of employees come in from kind of hiring to firing, do we have enough governance in place to make sure that we're getting things right? I don't think anyone can put up their hand and say they're going to get things right 100% of the time because there's so much businesses are complex, payroll systems are complex, instruments are uh, complex but making sure you have that governance in, in place is going to make sure at least that mistakes when they do happen are picked up and they're rectified quickly. So, so much of what we're doing in this space even for those who finish their payroll projects is to look at do we have everything right? Do we have record keeping okay? Do we have records so that we can we can deal with things if they come up or if complaints are made? So that's kind of the key focus, I think, for this year. And that's going to stand you in good stead if there's things like federal wage theft legislation that comes in, similar to, to Victoria and Queensland, to, to really, if you do if there is an investigation into your processes to be able to show that you have you have pretty strong processes and, and a focus in this area. Yeah, I, I look that that really resonates and probably with you too, Nerida, some of these concepts, particularly in those state jurisdictions where we do have wage theft legislation, there's there's a defense. So of you with a um, 
for those of you with a safety um, background and inclination, that governance is critical. And those are the sorts of things that um, if any of the audience is having conversation with your board members about, that's what's going to give them comfort from um, the risk of personal liability in this space. And it's, it's making sure that the processes and the procedures are right, but also just having an eye to trends and, and that holistic view as to, well, do we actually have a systemic issue? Are, are we seeing claims pop up here? What are our systems and processes like? So um, actually some of those really rich conversations have been with the support of our health and safety team who can help. Um, I, I'm going to say the same thing when we come to Lucy's um, session in relation to sexual harassment and reporting at a board level for that as well and what good looks like. But the nub of it is to treat these sorts of issues, compliance with wages, um, reporting in relation to sexual harassment and workplace behaviour in the same way that um, you report health and safety issues and, and near misses and the like. So um, it is it is a matter that boards care about, directors care about, because um, the, the, the consequences can be really significant. All right, Wendy, well, thank you for sharing your observations. Now, you've foreshadowed, of course, that we're in an election year. It feels like um, just yesterday we were talking about IR reform and reform more generally. If there's a change of government, here we are again. So, Brad, hi. Um, share with us what do you think is going to be, or what do we know um, is going to be on the agenda for both majors as we lead into this election? Uh, well, I mean, nothing at this stage is certain, of course, but I think it's fair to say that uh, to the extent that IR reform is uh, a big ticket item uh, in the lead up to the federal election, it's largely going to be put there by the Labor Party more so than the coalition. Uh, the coalition is, is far more likely to take a small target uh, approach to that issue. As to the types of issues that the, uh, that the Labor Party will likely be talking about, I mean, there's a whole range of them, of course. Uh, I think it's useful to think about them in a couple of key buckets. Um, the first perhaps being um, insecure work. I mean, this is an issue that was put squarely back in the spotlight again last week with the High Court's decisions in personnel contracting and, and ZG operations, which sort of come off the back of um, the High Court's decision in Rosado in August last year, which dealt with a different issue of uh, casual employment, but they have a common thread, which I think we'll, we'll talk about in a moment. Um, being the, the primacy of the contract. Um, but on the back of those decisions, I think um, you'll see discussion about uh, redefining casuals, looking, re-looking at the uh, definition of casuals that was inserted into the Act uh, last year, um, uh, and perhaps also definitions of employees to bring in gig workers and some types of um, contractor workers into the, uh, the fair work regime in a similar way to what we have in the um, superannuation guarantee legislation. So I think there'll be key issues in insecure work space, uh, along with perhaps uh, prohibitions on the use of rolling fixed term contracts. That's another key issue that uh, causes some ire in the Labor Party and, and the union movement. So um, that, as I say, as, as a first sort of bucket of issues, I think insecure work will be key. Uh, the next major sort of category, if you like, I think is, um, is improving uh, or enhancing terms and conditions of employment. And you know, so again, a range of issues in that space, but you know, pay, of course, will be a headline one. Uh, there's a, a real feeling that pay has been stagnant um, for a while now, but particularly in the, in the past couple of years with the pandemic, uh, and there'll be discussion uh, on the Labor side of the aisle uh, about things like you know, amending the Act to insert different considerations that the Commission has to take into account when setting uh, wage increases uh, to the minimum wage and, and the modern award base rates and those sorts of things. Um, beyond just that strict focus on pay, there will be discussions about reinvigorating the bargaining system, which again has been uh, reasonably stagnant over the past couple of years. Most businesses are focusing, focusing on you know, pandemic response really rather than uh, renewing their industrial instruments. So bargaining will, will I think, take life again. Um, and as part of that, uh, on the reform agenda for the Labor Party will be things like 
you know, sector bargaining and supply chain bargaining, which it's not entirely clear at this point, uh, you know, whether that will be pursued as part of uh, you know, the, the reform platform in this election, but, you know, may well be part of the discussion. Uh, but things like drop dead dates for old expired pre-reform agreements, uh, prohibitions on terminating uh, expired agreements in the course of bargaining, those types of things which will um, perhaps reinvigorate the bargaining, uh, the bargaining process and perhaps deliver enhanced outcomes to unions and employees in terms of wage outcomes and condition outcomes. Uh, another facet of uh, just terms and conditions of employment uh, may well be just a revisitation of basic entitlements. And there's entitlements, so things like paid parental leave um, and pandemic leave and, and those sorts of things. Um, so I think that's, that's broadly the second sort of bucket that is enhancing terms and conditions of employment. Uh, the other two that will be key, I think, are um, uh, workplace behaviour issues, which Lucy will talk about shortly, and, and of course the compliance issues, which um, which Wendy's already discussed. So, at least as far as the Labor Party is concerned, I think they'll be the key the key issues in play. Uh, and on the uh, the other side of uh, the ditch, what, I mean, the, the government had its crack, didn't it, with the omnibus bill, which was um, dealt with a lot, but. Uh, not much came through. It was quite anemic by the time that it uh, was enacted into law. What, what, what can we expect from um, the Liberal government if it's able to retain government following the election, Brad? Does it stand yeah. more than the status quo? Or? <laughs> well, I mean, the short answer is we don't know. I, I do think it'll be a much smaller target approach in terms of um, policy proposals in the running to this election. Uh, to the extent that there is reform on the table from the coalition's uh, side of the fence, I agree. The best place to look is uh, those items in the omnibus bill from which the uh, coalition retreated last year. So things like streamlining the enterprise agreement approval process, uh, longer term project agreements, eight year agreements for, for large projects. Uh, other issues will include um, you know, re-looking at construction codes, nationalising labour hire licensing and those sorts of things. Um, but we've heard far less from the coalition about exactly what will and won't be on its um, its reform list this time around. But no doubt, over the next couple of months, as the um, the discussion continues, we'll we'll learn more about it. Yeah. Well, obviously, it depends upon um, the you know the composition of government, how many seats they hold, the composition of the crossbench is critical. Um, all these sorts of issues, because really, that's what's um, scuttlebutted a lot of the features of what was the omnibus bill that never made it through. Brad, I just wanted to pick up on a couple of those buckets that you were talking about. Um, we uh, employment nerds get a bit excited when there's high court action and we, we had that last week. Um, it's been so much discussion, hasn't there, on the back of these two um, contracting cases. I'm just interested, so so just for the benefit of those um, listening, of course, this whole thing's for your benefit. <laughs> I feel like I'm just chatting amongst friends. Um, so those, those were cases um, concerning the true status of contract workers. So in one case, it was an unskilled labourer, a backpacker who was involved in what's known as an ODCO um, contractual relationship. So it's a triangular relationship. That individual supplied his labour um, pursuant to an independent contract, independent contractor relationship. Um, that business then in turn provides its labour that it receives in that manner to its clients. So it is a labour um, hire. The individual in that case um, was in fact found to be an employee of personnel contracting, the company to whom he contracted his labour. Um, contrast that with the other case in Jamsec and ZG um, uh, operations and, and that case involved two owner drivers who had been providing their services to this company for very many years. They were previously employees of the company. They, um, when they finished employment, went off, bought 
their trucks, invested a significant amount of capital into the purchase of those vehicles. They set up partnership arrangements through which they enjoyed the tax benefits that flowed from um, them providing that services. Now, those two individuals were found not, in fact, to be employees of the company. So in light of just that sheer factual sort of discrepancy between the two, it's interesting, don't you think, that there's been so much commentary about, you know, this is the death knell of secure work and does this mean that um, a bunch of clever lawyers can sit around and draft a contract and um, there won't be an issue? For my part, what I think has been missed in this conversation is that the High Court was at real pains to say this does not um, that we, not, we are not being asked to consider whether these are sham contracts or whether the validity of the contract has been at risk as a result of subsequent conduct of the parties. Of course, um, this is something that will be seized upon as it is already by unions who are outraged by these um, decisions. But Brad, your, your thoughts on this? You, know, you and I have... Yeah. Um, it's interesting, isn't it, the, the first comment about this being the death knell of uh, secure work in circumstances where, uh, in the first case you discussed, the court looked behind what is a pretty orthodox model, it's called the ODCO contracting model, it's been around for a long time, and the court looked behind it uh, and found the worker there to be an employee, um, which doesn't really square with the idea that this is the death knell of secure work. But uh, in any event, we can go a little bit deeper than that because, as you said, the, the headlines um, uh, or, or the taglines to all this have really been that um, all that matters is the contract of employment and the conduct of the parties in the course of their relationship is irrelevant. And that's not quite what the court said. What, what the court said is that where there's a contract between the parties and that contract is comprehensive and there's no reason to think that uh, the court shouldn't look behind it, then you can look to the terms of that contract, the substantive rights and obligations of the parties to one another to determine the character of their relationship. Uh, but the, the, the key point is that the conduct of the parties in the course of their relationship might, in another case, be re very relevant to uh, characterising the relationship um, because the conduct of the parties might amount to a variation of the contract by conduct, which means that it uh, moves from being a relationship of employment to one, uh, of contracting, sorry, to, to employment. Or it might be that the conduct of the parties sheds light on there being a sham arrangement or some sort of collateral contract. But um, as you put it, the, the court in, in both cases was at pains to say that none of those issues were argued in those cases. The, the, the issue put before the court was nothing more than a circumstance where there was a contract between the parties that described their relationship of employment and the court was asked in those circumstances to rule on what the relationship was, not any anterior uh, argument of variation or sham or anything like that. So. The conduct of the parties certainly is in, is in play and is relevant and if uh, parties are working pursuant to contracts that uh, just do not uh, represent what was going on in reality, then that may create a very different circumstance. Um, Brad, I, I don't know about your um, observation but just on that second bucket in terms of worker rights, entitlements, protections, seems to me that bargaining it's still on life support but there's this little kind of heartbeat which is starting to sort of um, beat <laughs> again um, as we move and emerge from the pandemic it seems like a lot of employers sensibly with the agreement of their union um, you know union um, relationships and the employees have agreed to just put things on ice and see what the world looks like there's still a great deal of uncertainty out there, but it does seem like some businesses and um, their workplaces are starting to turn their minds towards bargaining. Um, what's your observations in, in terms of this and, and what we can see coming up and in terms of election reform? Yeah, oh, well, with, without a doubt, um, uh, you know, businesses and unions alike are, are turning their minds to bargaining once again. Uh, and for some businesses, uh, they've got expired enterprise agreements that expired at some point in the last year or so, and uh, no one ever really had the inclination to start bargaining for a replacement. Uh, in other cases, uh, there were bargaining rounds that were ongoing at the onset of the pandemic, which were put on ice. And the question now is, uh, you know, 
what what has that done to claims over the period? The the things that are being pursued in the course of bargaining now are the same as they were a couple of years ago, and that that's um, can present all sorts of sleeping issues. But uh, most certainly, bargaining is is, is becoming uh, far more relevant again as as life goes back to normal. Yeah, I agree with that, and I think there's a real opportunity now as ever to um, have a think quite strategically about your bargaining landscape when your agreements are expiring, obviously cognizant that we could be faced with a changing government um, and a government that might pursue an agenda that impacts the bargaining framework. Um, look, just last one, Brad. Um, I think if you believe current polls, which history shows you cannot, it, it does seem in fact that there might be a change in government um, after this election. Can you just give us a sense of who's who in the zoo, I suppose, in terms of the ALP side of things at a federal level from an, an IR reform sense? Who, who's got a, who likes well, it? I mean, yeah, obviously enough, Tony Burke uh, in, in the public sphere will lead the discussion. He's the Shadow Minister of Industrial Relations uh, and assuming he keeps that portfolio, he will, he'll be leading. Uh, the charge, but the, you know, the interesting thing to watch is, of course, the fact that uh, the Labor Party has within it uh, a great deal of people, a great number of people with varied backgrounds, but uh, a shared keen interest in industrial relations. People like you know, Brendan O'Connor, who was the former uh, former National Secretary of the ASU, Terry Butler, a former uh, partner of Morris Blackburn in industrial law, Mark Butler, who's the Shadow Minister of Health and Ageing, who was the uh, South Australian Secretary of what used to be the MISOs, now United Voice, uh, and of course, uh, Jed Kearney, who's in the Outer Shadow Cabinet. So, you know, all uh, familiar players in, in the industrial relation, relations landscape, and they'll all have keen views and keen input into developing the uh, Labor Party platform behind the scenes. Well, everyone, we, of course, are keeping a really keen eye in developments, um, what's happening in terms of both parties in election reform. We, um, again, this year, as we did for the last federal election, are creating a federal election hub. It's actually being launched today, fortuitous timing. So um, keep an eye on that. We'll host a whole bunch of content on there. Um, we'll keep you up to date in what we're hearing from the likes of Tony Burke on the Liberal side of things. There'll be a range of podcasts and interviews and infographics. So we hope that that over the coming weeks in the lead up to the election is a really useful resource for you and your organisation. So um, keep that in mind. Brad, thanks. Um, Lucy, hi, we've got some time left um, for you now. Of course, Brad mentioned, and I think this is right, that third bucket of potential reform might be um, indeed in the area of sexual harassment and workplace conduct. Um, what's your views on that? Yeah, I think that's right. I think that um, workplace conduct, so sexual harassment and broader, in particular, bullying, will be an election issue. Um, we've seen in the last year that sexual harassment matters and bullying matters are continuing to hit the headlines, both in the private sphere and also in the public sphere. Um, you know, we've seen in our, our parliament um, uh, this, this play out and um, as well as in our high court with the um, former justice Dyson Hayden. Um, so, and we have also seen over the past year or so that the Morrison government is continuing to face heavy scrutiny about its treatment of women. So I think this will be a spotlight issue for the election. Um, in terms of uh, actual election platforms, we're yet to see any um, commitment to further legislative change from the coalition, but just this week, our Attorney General um, published a consultation paper and survey about uh, seeking feedback from the public about um, whether the remaining uh, recommendations from the Jenkins report should be adopted by the government. So I think there's a, a five week consultation period for that and um, time will tell whether we do see further legislative reform from this judge, uh, government. Um, in contrast, we have seen the ALP uh, make their position clear their position is that they will adopt all of the remaining uh, recommendations from the Jenkins report. So I guess 
the key recommendation which wasn't adopted by the coalition or hasn't been adopted to date was for a, a, a federal positive duty on employers to prevent sexual harassment, um, discrimination and victimisation in their, in their workplaces. Um, and, and that's seen as really in the Jenkins report, it was seen as the, the major um, recommendation which will be crucial to um, affecting change in this area. So um, I guess aside from the political side, we are seeing a groundswell of um, public debate and discourse about this duty. Um, in, in just last week in the um, National Press Club address from Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins, it was an issue that was picked up. So I think that, you know, whichever government is, is elected, um, either way, we're going to see a continued push for that duty in particular to be adopted and, and for um, changes to be made. I think that's right, Lucy, but of course, I mean, we've seen so many cases recently and this is in the public spotlight and rightly in the public conversation, these sorts of issues. So, I mean, even regardless of legislative reform, employers who care about these sorts of issues as they ought to are grappling with them and they're doing so at a board level. What, 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 what do boards need? How should they be thinking about these sorts of issues? What do executives need to be thinking about? What, what, what sort of tips can we give them? I think that's so right, Nat. Regardless of whether a federal positive duty is mandated, the employers need to be, and boards in particular, need to be focusing on this issue. Um, and, and that's not just from a compliance perspective, but that's from the perspective that having a workplace with a positive and healthy culture is just good for business. Um, it makes you it makes you a place that people want to work. It's good for recruitment and retention. Um, so I, I think it's so important for boards to be alive to this issue um, and to to look at um, prevention rather than just reacting to claims when they come up. Because you know, as we've seen over the last year, with um, CEO scandals, there's, you know, often a, an immediate impact to the share price and the company's name is being dragged through the mud in headlines. Um, so I think the focus needs to be on, on stopping these behaviours occurring in the first place. Um, so I guess what can boards and, and senior management be doing? I think one of the crucial learnings from some of the high profile cases that we're seeing and a commonality in them is that these issues have been bubbling under the surface for, for many years um, and they've only sort of come to the board's attention when it's too late um, and when there is a you know a big headline about it. So I think that um, boards and leadership need to look at um, reporting structures. So ensuring that the head of HR doesn't just report into the CEO who could be or who could be the, the cause of the problem. Um, there needs to be a direct avenue to the board and, and these sort of issues needs to be a, a standing item on a board's agenda. Um, I think in terms of other um, structural changes that should be made, uh, one of the key findings from the Jenkins report was that at the centre of bullying claims, harassment claims, is an imbalance of power and a lack of respect and that's particularly prevalent in workplaces which have um, gender inequality and particularly where there's a male-dominated senior leadership team. So uh, I think uh, structurally um, boards and senior leadership need to be taking a broad approach and looking at, um, you know, uh, getting more diversity in their senior leadership, having a higher participation of females in senior leadership and also in their organisation um, because unfortunately what we've seen is where there's not a diverse senior leadership and board structure, it can be a breeding ground for these sort of toxic behaviours. Yeah, absolutely. And that role of the, the bystander intervening and the psychological safety that people have to speak up about these sorts of things is actually what you need to break that culture. And as you say, Lucy, the science shows that that um, sort of change can occur when you do have senior role models, senior people talking about these sorts of issues regularly 
in a way that people do feel comfortable coming up. And I'm labouring this point, but um, Nerida, the sort of um, conversations that directors ought to be having in this space really is one that they're very comfortable in doing so in relation to safety incidents and, and picking trends and from a governance perspective. So yes, it should be a standard. Um, yeah, I think that's right. I think it's also worth saying that part of the recognition in the respective work report and what we know now is that sexual harassment is usually not an individual, not a localised issue, it's often systemic, and it is a safety issue. You know, it is an issue that is um, in the focus of safety regulators, and rightly so, because it is a psychological, it's a serious hazard to, to workers' health and wellbeing. So um, it, it's quite right that this is an issue, and I think that's, that's one of the drivers for that positive duty. It is to mimic the success of WHS regulations and, and that forward focus and systemic focus of WHS management. Well, thank you everyone um, for sharing your insights. Thank you to all of you who've dialed in. Um, we did get to most of your questions, not all, so we will follow up um, with the key insights um, from this and in answer to your questions. It's been a real joy having you um, join us. As I said, we're really delighted to be able to launch our federal election hub. It would be quite remiss of me to not mention the upcoming training programs that we have by members of our team, which is available for you um, online. So um, please do get in touch if that's of interest. They're, they're a fantastic program run by our experts all across the country. We'll leave it there. Thank you all panellists for sharing your insights and thank you everyone.